God's word in Exodus 25 says this. The Lord said to Moses, speak to the people of Israel that they take for me a contribution. From every man whose heart moves him, you shall receive the contribution for me. And this is the contribution that you shall receive from them, gold, silver, and bronze, blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twined linen, goat's hair, tanned ram's skins, goat skins, acacia wood, oil for the lamps, spices for the anointing oil and for the fragrant incense, onyx stones and stones for setting, for the ephod and for the breastpiece, and let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst." Exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and of all of its furniture, so you shall make it. They shall make an ark of acacia wood. Two cubits and a half shall be its length, and a cubit and a half its breadth, and a cubit and a half its height. You shall overlay it with pure gold. Inside and outside shall you overlay it, and you shall make on it a molding of gold around it. You shall cast four rings of gold for it and put them on its four feet, two rings on the one side of it and two rings on the other side of it. You shall make poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold, and you shall put the poles into the rings on the sides of the ark to carry the ark by them. The poles shall remain in the rings of the ark. They shall not be taken from it. And you shall put into the ark the testimony that I shall give you. You shall make a mercy seat of pure gold. Two cubits and a half shall be its length, and a cubit and a half its breadth. And you shall make two cherubim of gold. Of hammered work shall you make them on the two ends of the mercy seat. Make one cherub on the one end and one cherub on the other end. Of one piece with the mercy seat shall you make the cherubim on its two sides." The cherubim shall spread out their wings above, overshadowing the mercy seat with their wings, their faces one to another. Toward the mercy seat shall the faces of the cherubim be, and you shall put the mercy seat on the top of the ark, and in the ark you shall put the testimony that I shall give you. There I will meet with you, and from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim that are on the ark of the testimony, I will speak with you about all that I will give you in commandment for the people of Israel. We'll stop there for now. Let's just pray again briefly. Yes, Lord, we do. We have come this morning to hear your word. We believe you have spoken. We believe you do speak. We believe, Lord, by your grace, you will speak to us afresh today. We ask for your help as we've already sung and prayed, Lord, for you to draw, to convict, for you to give life, for you to heal, for you to do all your planned purposes for your word, for the accomplishment of your goals in this world, for your glory because of Christ and by your spirit. We pray this. Amen. You can be seated. I'm sure we've all had that experience of realizing that someone with whom we're having a conversation apparently doesn't know or doesn't realize that something is really important. 
something we think is really important, is a really big deal, and we feel compelled to explain to them why this thing is a really big deal. So if you're a fan of the Chicago Cubs, you've surely explained to someone how big of a deal it was when in 2016 the Cubs finally won a World Series. It's a big deal because they hadn't won since 1908. It's a big deal because uh, they were in the World Series, I think, seven times before 2016 and lost those. And they, they did so in spectacular fashion, as many of us know. Certainly all Cubs fans know that they're famous for blowing those important games. It's a big deal that they won. Or as a parent, you, you might discover that your kids don't don't know something, maybe the Great Depression. They ask, what's the Great Depression? You think, well, we gotta explain this, or what's this Titanic thing, or, or what is the Industrial Revolution, Dad? And I'm sure many of us have had our children at some point ask us, what's 9-11? And we think, how did this one get by? How did we not talk about this sooner? And so you sit down, you explain it to them, maybe you even watch a documentary with them if they're old enough. But we're dealing with something along those lines with the tabernacle in the Bible. Because many of us, even Christians, I suspect, don't understand that it's really a big deal. It may seem irrelevant for today, irrelevant for us today, because it was so long ago and in a different era of God's saving plan. Reading parts of Exodus 25 and following might feel like we're reading the instruction manual for a device or a piece of furniture that we'll never own, that we don't have to use, and thankfully we don't have to put it together. But it's far more important than many of us realize of course, it's very important to the Exodus story. We can discover that simply by the amount of attention given to it within the Exodus story. Within 40 chapters of the book of Exodus, 13 chapters are devoted to some aspect of the tabernacle. Exodus, Exodus 25 to 31 give us the instructions for the assembly of the tabernacle. And then Exodus 35 to 40 describe the actual building of the tabernacle. So if you're keeping straight there, there's only a few chapters in what's left of Exodus for us as a church that doesn't relate directly to the tabernacle. But the tabernacle is also really important to the whole Bible. It's integral to the whole Bible story. It really stretches from one end of our Bibles to the other. As we'll see, the pattern of the tabernacle has leanings on and, and foreshadows in the Garden of Eden. And we'll see in Revelation 21, at the end of time, a new heaven and a new earth is called the tabernacle of God. So I hope by the end of our study that you have a fuller understanding of the importance of the tabernacle in its own time and place, but also its relevance for today, and I hope that you better appreciate your place 
in relation to the tabernacle of God, which really is about the presence of God. And that's why it's no small thing. Now, in upcoming weeks, uh, in our study of Exodus, we're really going to take things we could say at a, a theme per week. This week, the tabernacle. Next week will be the priesthood. And really, these themes follow in order in the text as it's laid out for us, chapter by chapter. But occasionally, there is in the text a circling back to a theme that's already been talked about. And it's certainly the case when we get to chapter 35 and following, when the construction of the tabernacle is underway, following the exact same order of the things in the instructions for the building of the tabernacle, which we're in right now. So occasionally, in weeks ahead, we're going to group some different texts together under the same theme. One example of that would be what I read already from Exodus 25 in the first nine verses, the contributions that are needed for the tabernacle. We're going to leave that aside for this week. Why? Well, because in Exodus 35, they actually give those contributions and so we'll just come back to Exodus 25 when we're in Exodus 35 and talk about the contributions together there. So for this week, apart from the first nine verses of Exodus 25, we're going to look at Exodus 25, 26, and 27, three chapters devoted to the tabernacle's specifications, its components, its, its furnishings, We'll go at this on four different levels, or, or with four different layers. We'll talk about the features of the tabernacle, surveying its specifics. Then we'll talk about the significance of those features. What do they mean? What do they symbolize? Then we'll talk about the fulfillment of the tabernacle. Where does the story of the tabernacle go from here in God's grand plan of the whole Bible? And then lastly, we'll talk about the implications of the tabernacle for today. So first, here's the features of the tabernacle. Let's just survey the parts. Let's just get a feel for the landscape. If we read on beyond chapter 25 into chapter 26 and 27, much of which, much of which I won't read today, but just point out some things here or there. But we would see that the tabernacle complex was made up of three sections. And let me just show you this on a diagram. You can see here. So we can start on the outer ring of things. And with that fenced area of 150 feet by 75 feet, we have comprised what's called the courtyard or the outer court. And there, as we, read, as we would read on, we would see a... A bronze laver, a bronze altar, those are mainly for the people, at least the altar, the laver for the priests in their washing before they enter. Notice the red here is like a veil. They would enter the holy place, the holy place. That's for any of the priests. That's where they do sacrifices. In there, we're going to see there's a table and there is a lampstand and then beyond that, beyond another veil, is the innermost part of the tabernacle called the Holy of Holies or the Most Holy Place. 
And notice that's where this starts in our description given by God in Exodus 25. It did the opposite of what I just did. It didn't move from the outer fence into the innermost part, but it starts in the innermost part and works its way out. We'll talk about the significance of that in just a bit. But as we continue to survey what's going on, we could look down in our Bibles and you can see, as maybe you have a Bible with headings in them like mine does, sure enough, the ark, that starts in verse 10 of chapter 25, the table, verse 23 of that chapter, the golden lampstand, that's described in verse 31 in following. And then my Bible has the tabernacle for chapter 26. I don't find that a particularly helpful heading because all of this is the tabernacle. So you could call that section of chapter 26, curtains and rings and things, oh my. I don't know. It's the framing for all this stuff, the curtains for all these things, even the clasps and the rings that are going to be used. And it's at the end of chapter 26 that we actually see that threefold sectioning off of the tabernacle so clearly. So let's read a section there, starting in verse 31 of 26. And you shall make a veil of blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twined linen. It shall be made with cherubim skillfully worked into it. And you shall hang it on four pillars of acacia overlaid with gold, with hooks of gold, with four bases of silver, And you shall hang the veil from the clasps and bring the ark of the testimony in there within the veil. And the veil shall separate for you the holy place from the most holy place or the holy of holies. You shall put the mercy seat in the ark of the testimony in the most holy place. And you shall set the table outside the veil and the lampstand on the south side of the tabernacle opposite the table. And you shall put the table on the north side. You shall make a screen for the entrance of the tent of blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twined linen embroidered with needlework. And you shall make for the screen five pillars of acacia and overlay them with gold. Their hooks shall be of gold and you shall cast five bases of bronze for them. Now, the specificity for these instructions is pretty impressive, if not dizzying. Sizes, materials, various designs upon the materials, the the placement of things, even down to specific measurements, and even down to the placement of where utensils are going to go and where the ashes will be placed. And if we read this straight through, we would notice this repetition of this line, you shall make, you shall make. Almost every sentence begins with you shall make. And several times God underscores that the construction must be exactly as he says. Let me show you those. Chapter 25, verse 9 exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle in the furniture. And then verse 40 of that same chapter, see that you make them after the pattern for them, which is being shown you. And then chapter 26, verse 30, erect the tabernacle according to the plan for, you, for it you were shown. And then chapter 27, verse 8, 
as it has been shown you on the mountain, so it shall be made. So here's my point right now, is that however tedious, however minuscule the directions may seem to us, they are relevant to God, the designer, the speaker here. It's all purposeful, apparently, even if we don't understand the purposes quite yet. So now having done a survey of the features of the tabernacle, now we can get into the significance of these features. Secondly, the significance of the tabernacle and its features. And the overall significance, as I alluded to already, is the presence of God among his people. The mediated presence of God among his people. The tabernacle is quite literally the tent of God in the middle of all the other tents in the camp of the people. And we get these two texts, these key texts, which are really purpose statements for the whole project. Note those well. Chapter 25, verse 9, God says he's having them make a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. That I may dwell in their midst. There it is. That's what he's up to. Or chapter 25, verse 22, there I will meet with you. Now remember, at this point in the story, God has shown up on Mount Sinai, starting back in chapter 19. And remember, at this point, the people have heard his voice. The people have seen something of his glory and his power, though from afar. And this moment, as we've been saying, is so important. Mount Sinai is something like never has happened before this point in redemptive history. But God just keeps upping the stakes. Now, in chapter 25, God is sort of, shall we say, making plans to move off the mountain and into the neighborhood. God has picked out a house. And because his people will leave Mount Sinai in less than 40 days and be a traveling nomadic people, his house must be like theirs, a tent, a mobile tent. Remember from last week how we saw even just in the first couple verses of chapter 24 that there are three levels of proximity to God's presence? There are the people at the base of the mountain. There's Moses up at the apex of the mountain meeting with God. And then there are these 73 other leaders somewhere up the face of the mountain in the middle having their own special experience with the presence of God. That's not quite what Moses had atop the mountain. Three levels of proximity. Well, I said last week that it's likely that Chapter 24, verses 1 and 2, is a foreshadow of what's to come in the tabernacle. Three different locales, three different proximities to God's presence. The most holy place where only the high priest goes. The holy place where the priests go. And then the court where God's people may come. If all that is true, then... Then the tabernacle is something like a mobile Mount Sinai 
You can't travel with a mountain. The people are going to leave, and if they're going to have God go with them, then God must go with them in apparently a tabernacle or a tent. God reveals his presence to his people, particularly in this thing called the ark. Let's dig into that a little bit. Chapter 25, verse 10 and following. Of course, the ark was just a wooden box with gold laid over it. You know, you've seen it in Indiana Jones. It had a cover on it. That's really important. In fact, it's called a covering, partly because it was a cover and partly because once a year, blood would be sacrificed and it would cover that cover of of the box, of the ark. Following William Tyndale's lead in his early English translation, many English translations today call it the mercy seat, verse 17 of the ESV. That's atonement, that's covering. It's where atonement would be made. That's the word atonement, means covering for sin. That's what would happen there. It was a cover, in there it would be covered. But it's also a footstool for God's heavenly throne. This is hinted at with the placement of the cherubim, the angels, on each side of the top of the ark, looking down and inward. We see something similar of the throne room of God in Ezekiel 1 or um, Isaiah 6 or Revelation when John sees the throne room of heaven there are angels about the throne not looking up but looking down because God is worthy they are unworthy of that great unassailable glory and so this is something like the throne room of God with the ark like a footstool for the throne of God And we know that for sure because of other passages. So King David, when later referring to the temple, which is like Tabernacle 2.0, King David said that God would one day have a house of rest for the ark of the covenant of the Lord and for the footstool of our God. Ark, footstool. You see it in Psalm 132, verse 7. Let us go to his dwelling place. Let's worship at his footstool. And Psalm 99 connects cherubim and footstool. He sits enthroned upon the cherubim. Worship at his footstool. So picture it. It's like there's an invisible throne in heaven, but coming down out of heaven is God's his footstool, his ottoman. It's the place of his presence, which means then the tabernacle is a meeting of heaven and earth. It's a portal, you could say. A portal of God's special, unique presence. Like Sinai was for just however long. Now this would be for much, much longer. And that's why the ark can't be touched by human hands because they're contaminated with sin, and that's, it's the essence of God's presence on earth in that ark. So poles were to be placed through those metal rings to, to transport the ark, not touched by human hands. 
No small detail, just ask Uzzah in 2 Samuel 6. Well, the ark also suggests something of God's reign and his authority, his rule. He sits on a throne, not a lazy boy and not a couch. It's a throne, and that's likely why under the ark within it are copies of the law. Copies of the law. This is his law. This is his covenant. These are his documents. He's the king. And this is why it all starts with the ark. This is why God, in his design, does something we wouldn't do if we were describing to someone our new plans for a house being built. Some idea we have of some house. You would probably start with the land. You'd probably start with whether it's two-story or, or one or how many car garage you have. If you're a, a car guy, perhaps. You, you'd, you'd, if maybe some here would start with the kitchen. It's got this gourmet kitchen, you might say, and you work out from there. But the ark is the most central thing. It's the hot spot of God's presence, and so everything works out from there. I hope this isn't inappropriate, but imagine a husband saying to his wife, Honey, we're going to build a house together for our life together. Let me show you the bed. Huh? I can't imagine doing that, but uh, that's sort of what God does here, if that's not inappropriate. God starts with the most important thing, and he works out from there. To the table which is for bread, not unimportant, but now we're outside of the most holy place into the holy place. And there, there's a table for bread. And the significance isn't spelled out for us. It's not. It just, just the specifications are given. But we know from Leviticus 24 that on that table were to be laid out 12 loaves of bread for the 12 tribes of Israel. We know from Leviticus 24 that priests were to eat that bread for a week. And then whatever was left over at the end of the week on the Sabbath, that bread would be exchanged with two fresh loaves, 12 fresh loaves of bread. Now, the significance of that might be inferred by contrasting those details with what was commonly done in ancient Near East religions with their idols. They fed them. They assumed that their gods were hungry and couldn't get up to go get their food, and so they brought their food nicely to them and imagined that maybe a little had been nibbled on since the last time they were there, so they put more out. If you've been to a, a restaurant or a nail salon where there's a Buddha, you maybe have seen food in front of it. Well... Here we have, in the tabernacle of the true and living God, we have food in his temple, so to speak, but not laid out for God to eat as if he needed anything, as if he couldn't get his own food, as if he even needs food. No, instead it's the reverse. God feeds his people. God provides just as he had done in the wilderness already, just as he will do when they're in the wilderness once again. And he feeds them with manna from the sky. The priests then, representing all the people with these 12 loaves for the 12 tribes, they're eating freely in the presence of God 
which probably implies then fellowship with God, not just his provision. Remember we saw last week, those 73 leaders halfway up the mountain, they beheld God and ate and drank. Chapter 24, verse 11. That's astounding. We said last week that's, that's likely a covenantal meal signifying fellowship and acceptance. I've had family in town for 4th of July weekend. What do we do together? We eat. We eat. We eat more than we should. We eat again. What are we going to do next? I don't know. It's going to involve food. Food is good. It's fellowship. And it's shared right here between God and representatives of his people. And we have the lampstand on the other side of this same room, the holy place, a lampstand. It's pure gold weighing 75 pounds. And again, the significance isn't spelled out for us here, except that it is to give light, verse 37. Of course, that's what it's for. And yes, that has to be a practical matter. Uh, you're in a tent without windows, without screens to let light in. How will the priests see to do their work? Well, there's that light. But, but it had more significance than that. God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. He gives light. He is light. It represents his purity, his, bold, his holiness, and his goodness. But this lamp doesn't just do light. It's also it's tree-like. It's a menorah with seven branches. But this menorah, unlike maybe some you've seen, is more ornate, more tree-like. It has blossoms and flowers and fruit. So this is likely a symbol for one of the more famous trees in the Bible. The tree of life. The tree of salvation from the garden. Here is salvation. Here is God's presence with his people being restored. And another layer of significance that might be gleaned is from how the priests were to care for and maintain the fire of the golden lampstand. You see, Exodus 27, verse 20 and 21, there we learned that the priests were to maintain this fire constantly, from morning till evening. The lamp must not go out. And some scholars suggest that that might function like your porch light staying on at night so that people know you're home. We know how this works at, at Halloween time, right? You tell your kids, if you're a trick-or-treating kind of family, you tell your kids, if the light's on, kids, that's a welcome mat. You can go up. And if the light's out, no one's home, or, or they want to pretend that no one's home. Well, so this always lit lamp of the tabernacle may have significance that God was always there, always home. And then we'll talk about the curtains of chapter 26 briefly before we move on to another section. What do the curtains signify? Well, if we read the description in chapter 26, which I'd encourage you to do later, you'd see that they display God's majesty and his worth, that they symbolize something of creation and the created order. 
They're used with a, they're made with expensive materials and put together with great skill. They're beautiful and rich and regal with their colors, but but they should also communicate to us these curtains. The most obvious thing. Curtains divide. Curtains separate. Curtains partition off. Part, c- curtains, we could even say, block off. On the one hand, the tabernacle was, yes, about God's astounding presence within the camp of his people. Stand in awe of that. Nothing like this had ever been done since the Garden of Eden. I mean, God spoke to Abraham. He spoke to Noah. He showed himself in a burning bush to Moses. Yes, he he touched down on Mount Sinai for a time, but nothing like the, the, the tabernacle had existed until this time, not since the garden. And yet, on the other hand, the tabernacle clearly communicated and vividly demonstrated this separation, this distance between God and man on account of his holiness and our sin. The curtains, the many curtains, and their veils, and the thickness of them, And the weight of them, it all made clear that this is not a God with whom we just run at to get a hug. He is still the God who is presently at this time keeping his people off the base of the mountain lest they die from his glory. Do you remember how Adam and Eve, after they sinned, they were banished from the garden banished from the place of God's presence and communion. Oh, there will be a way forward as we read on in the story from Genesis 3, but there is no way back into the garden. And so God not only banishes them from the garden, but he puts two angels at the entrance to the garden to keep Adam and Eve from entering. Well, it's probably not coincidental then that the veil to the holy place in the tabernacle was to have cherubim woven onto the fabric. Chapter 26, verse 31. You'll have cherubim woven onto the veil as if to remind God's people of the garden once guarded by angels keeping God's people from God's most intimate presence because of their sin. Now, praise God, some could go in. Some could go farther. The high priest can and must go into the holy of holies just once a year for just one sacrifice. But he can go in. Praise God for that. Praise God that priests can and they must go into that holy place, 15 by 30, to make sacrifices and offerings for themselves and the people. And praise God that the people can come into the courtyard to bring their sacrifices and offerings. That's unpacked in chapter 27 with the brazen altar. I'd encourage you to read that later on your own. But let's not miss the main point 
They can come with sacrifice into the courtyard, which is getting close to the presence of God in an unparalleled way, even more so than Mount Sinai. But they must bring sacrifice. They must bring sacrifice because of their sin. Tony Merida, he's a professor at Southeastern Seminary. His little devotional book on Exodus, there he writes this. The altar, the brazen altar, was the first thing a worshiper would see when entering. The massive size of the altar confronted them with the massive gap between them and God. There had to be a sacrifice. Remember, without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sins. The people were reminded of that as they entered the courtyard. They must bring sacrifice. They cannot come any further than the courtyard. They must not even look into the holy place, let alone the most holy place. So God is both near and he is separate. God is both merciful and he is holy. That's what the curtains all signify. He's here and we just can't keep going all the way in, not on our own. You think of the various veils which speak to both the access and the restrictions. I mean, the, the veils mean someone can go in. It's a veil. It's not a brick wall. God doesn't say build a holy of holies four walls of brick like a catacomb because no one is ever getting this close to me. It's a veil. And there's a veil that speaks to a tension we have, just like the whole Mount Sinai experience. There's presence and distance, and we should feel that tension in the tabernacle, or we'll never know that more is needed besides the tabernacle. So now thirdly, we come to the fulfillment of the tabernacle, the fulfillment of it. Now, the fulfillment of it includes what's later called the temple built in Solomon's day, a more permanent structure once God's people are situated in a plot of land in Jerusalem. But the tabernacle slash temple, even that whole thing, it actually turns to bad news even in the Old Testament before it ever gets to good news. You see, before there is fulfillment of the tabernacle slash temple, there is failure. Failure of the people and even failure of the system. In 586 B.C., Solomon's temple was destroyed by King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon. It was no defeat of God. Of course, that was all his plan. And God was bringing judgment upon his covenant people for their ongoing stubborn rebellion against him. So God gave them a 70-year timeout, you could say, in exile, out of the land, in Babylon, in slavery, and as they were pulled away, so Nebuchadnezzar destroyed the temple. He destroyed the temple. The place of God's presence. 
It's all right, though. God was intending to show his people what they had taken for granted and also to help them long for something even more than what they had. So God did this through the exile. God did this through the destruction of the temple. And God did this through speaking through prophets who would rebuke and warn, but also lay out promises for the future, some of which would mean restoration to what they had before, but some of the promises were even larger, bigger than anything they had ever known or imagined before. So Ezekiel, in the days of the exile, Ezekiel 37, God says through his prophet, I will save them from all the backslidings in which they've sinned. I will cleanse them, and they shall be my people, and I will be their God. Verse 26, I will set my sanctuary in their midst forever. My dwelling place shall be with them. Oh, you can read so many similar Statements like Zechariah 2, which celebrate the presence of God one day in a full and final and even global kind of way. Well, if we fast forward from the destruction of the temple, eventually the people are let go. Eventually some head home and they begin to rebuild that old temple or really to construct a new one from the rubble. You can imagine the optimism for those in the new building project of the temple, now with these larger promises about God dwelling with his people forever. Those promises in their pockets, a smile on their face, a hammer in their hands, digging, yes, indeed. And then it's all done. You read about this in Ezra and Nehemiah. You read about it in Haggai 2, that those old enough to remember the glory of the first temple actually wept when the second temple was finished because uh, it was so inferior. That's the temple they sit on for quite a while. Now, by the time that Jesus comes on the scene in the New Testament, the the temple has been expanded. We we call that Herod's temple because Herod has funded the gold plating and massive expansion of a pretty small, bitty temple originally done in the days of Ezra and Nehemiah. But rather than show up on the scene with this majestic gold-plated temple in the background and praise its glory, Jesus says shocking things like this early on in his ministry. John 2, he says to his opponents, destroy this temple and in three days I will build it again. In three days I will raise it up. His opponent said, what are you talking about? It took 46 years to get the temple like this. And you're going to destroy it and raise it up in three days? And John tells us, by way of commentary there, at first we didn't get that. But once he was dead and raised from the dead, we remembered this little line, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up again. And they knew that Jesus had been referring to his body the temple. Once again, not a coincidence. 
No, I mean, John 1 there, John says that the word, that is God, that is Jesus, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. But the Greek word here is the word for tabernacle. It's the verb of tabernacle. He tabernacled among us. And we've seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. So Jesus is the tabernacle. That's where this thing's going. So as I said at the beginning of this sermon, many of us don't think the tabernacle is that big of a deal. It was a big deal in its own day, and it is a big deal because it keeps getting talked about all through the Bible, but it's especially a big deal because of where the theme goes. Jesus is the tabernacle. Jesus is the embodiment of God's glory. Jesus, maybe we could say, is the ark. I say maybe because in John 20, verse 12, when Mary is at the empty tomb, she sees two angels, one at the head, one at the feet of where they laid Jesus. Are we supposed to think ark right then? Maybe. I, I don't know. I'm 80% sure that, yeah, John intended that. John was winking and thinking ark and hoping we would do the same. The only other time that there were this strip of property with two angels facing each other on the sides. But he's certainly the bread from heaven. He's not just the tabernacle. He's the bread from heaven, according to John 6. He's the true bread from heaven, the bread of God who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. He's the light of the world. In John 8, John 9, I think John 11, also in John 12, Jesus says he is the light of the world. Now we'll consider next week how Jesus is also the perfect priest in the final sacrifice, he is even the embodiment of the curtain in the tabernacle. But let's hone in just a little bit more on this theme of the presence of God. The presence of God is a theme that really can be an axis point for the whole Bible. Or we can trace the argument of the Bible and the drama of the Bible along this axis point of the presence of God. So the presence of God was what was enjoyed in the garden before the fall. It's what was lost when sin entered this world and Adam and Eve were thrown out of the garden. The presence of God was, is what was occasionally, briefly encountered by men like Noah and Abraham and Jacob and Moses. But then there was a season where it was enjoyed and, and yet guarded and mediated in a tabernacle and later a temple. God was drawing near to his people. He was moving in. Of course, as we said already, in the days of the exile, the temple's destroyed. It seems hope is lost, except the prophets keep not only promising restoration, but enlargement. And these Promises are fulfilled in Jesus, who is not only the tabernacle and the temple himself, but he makes the temple. All who would believe in him and be saved. 
He is not only the temple, he makes temples. He causes us to be the dwelling place of God on earth. This is in John 14. Jesus says, whoever obeys me, the Father loves them, and we will come to him and make our home with him. Jesus promises the Holy Spirit in John 14. He's going to go away, but the Holy Spirit's going to come. And that's even better because it's not an embodied person, Jesus, who's only in one place at a time on the ground because of his incarnation, but a Holy Spirit who indwells every Christian everywhere. He will be with you. Or Paul can say in his First letter to the Corinthians, do you not know you are God's temple? God's spirit dwells in you. He says a few chapters later, do you not know your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you whom you have from God? And what is individually true of every Christian is also even more so true of Christians corporately. We get this from 1 Peter 2. Where Peter writes that you yourselves, like living stones, that's temple language, you are being built up as a spiritual house, not a physical house, a spiritual house, to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So picture it as living stones, they're they're people, as living stones come together They make up a spiritual house for God's presence and his worship. They have God's presence on their own, individually, privately, all through the week. But when they come together, there is something special, unique. God has always inhabited the praises of his people. But now there is something of the local church being a habitation for the presence of God. And what is true individually of us as Christians, what's true corporately of us as a church is even more true and more full at the end of time when Jesus comes back. In Revelation 7, John sees those who have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. And he says they are before the throne of God. And they serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. It doesn't get any nearer than that. It doesn't get any deeper than that. It doesn't get any glorious than that. In Revelation 21, John says he saw a new heaven and a new earth. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, and I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God. The New American Standard gets it right there. The tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and he himself will be among them. That's where it's going. I close with... The implications of all this for today. Let me suggest to you four implications, and I have them worded as uh, pithy and as punchy exhortations for us. 
Number one, stand back. Some of you need to hear this. Stand back. If you're not a Christian, and if you are in any way presumptuous about your presumed access to God on your own, in your own standing, in your own strength, because of your own doing, you're not ready for Jesus yet. You need to go back to the tabernacle, as it were, in your mind. You need to hear curtains for you. Curtains. Do not come in. You must not come in. You cannot march through the veil into the holy place or the most holy place. Some of you need to just lovingly be told, stand back until you get that. But then secondly, hopefully once that has done its work, come on in. Come on in through Jesus Christ and his death and resurrection alone, not counting any of your own doing or any of your own worth before God as a reason to enter into his presence. Hebrews 10.19 tells Christians, we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus. So if you think that sentence should finish some other way, we have confidence to enter into God's holiest of places because he's so nice, because, because I'm pretty good, because I'm better than Joe down the street. None of that. It's by the blood of Jesus. But by the blood of Jesus, come on in. Come all the way in, all the way to heaven itself, to God's very presence. A third implication for Christians, then, is to recognize. You better recognize what's going on around us. Heaven, God's very presence. You better recognize what's going on in your soul, the indwelling of God himself. You now are his temple. You have been made his holy place. So let's act like it. Recognize it. I mean, if we walked in the reality that we are tabernacles of God's presence set aside for his holy worship, that might be some good motivation for some in this room to not click on that link next week. That's in the presence of God. That's before the throne. That's with the Holy Spirit in my heart. And I must glorify God with my body. Recognize. And lastly, look up. Look up. Because the day of our final redemption draws near. Look up. A new heaven and a new earth is coming. God himself in his fullness is coming. If you think of heaven as this boring place on the clouds where fat angels shoot harps or, or shoot arrows and play harps, you're, you're missing out on how glorious it will be when Jesus returns. It'll be unimaginable. It's not that we go up to the clouds and, and maybe we see him from far away. It's actually that he comes down and makes a whole new earth with us and with worship at the center of it all. Look up. 
The day of our redemption draws near. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we thank you for the richness of your word and its interconnectedness. This is no human book, no mere human book, sloppily assembled by who knows how many authors. But it is your book, it is your plan, it is your glory, it is your presence that we read about and that we seek. In your presence, Lord, is the fullness of joy and at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. And so may some in this room today enter into your saving presence through Jesus' blood. May some today in this room recognize more fully what it means to be a tabernacle or temple for your presence. May we all look up and be watchful for the day when all of this comes to completion and we will not be bored, but we will be jaw-dropped for eternity. All glory will be to Christ in that day. And we pray and say so even now. Amen.